I'm Chris Nessie, host of Behind the Mic, Voices of the EPN, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another great episode of My EdTech Life. Thank you so much for joining us on this wonderful Saturday, or it may be well into Sunday, depending on where you're joining us in the world, or maybe just a couple of hours ahead, just like our guest this morning that I'm excited to bring on. But before we introduce our amazing legendary guest, I would love to thank every single one of you who watches the show, all of our support, the supporters, everybody that has given us those likes, those shares, those follows. Thank you, as always, from the bottom of my heart for making my EdTech life what it is today. So again, I am so excited because we have a two-time guest now. And I'm so happy and eager to talk to him because he has been just somebody that I follow on social media, the work that he is doing pretty much all over the place uh, has been something that has been definitely inspiring for tech enthusiasts, also for anybody that is in school as far as senior leadership as well. And I, like we were talking a little bit pre-chat, and even then he'll develop some ed tech tools as well. So he is definitely a busy man, but I'm thankful and grateful for him to be able to be here on the show this morning. And I would love to welcome Mr. Al Kingsley to the show. Al, how are you doing on this beautiful morning here in Texas and hopefully a wonderful afternoon in the UK? It is a wonderful afternoon. The sun is shining. There is no rain, so I am happy. And I'm also slightly disappointed because the last time we both spoke, Fonz, we didn't have any gray hair. So that just shows how long it's been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it was been, it's been a quite a while. Actually, I was talking to you in the pre-chat and, you know, the last time that you were on the show, it was uh, I believe it was July. I, I think it was July or it was June 19th. Yeah, actually, it was June 19th of 2021. And boy, have things changed, obviously. And so, but again, I'm just thankful that you're here and we get to talk about a lot of great things. Obviously, your work, uh, you know, for myself, just like I mentioned earlier, you know, seeing everything that you're doing and just the positive impact and what you contribute to the ed tech space and the, you know, education space has been something that is amazing. So if you don't follow Al yet, please make sure that you do follow him on Twitter and see everything that he does and just really uh, how uh, really invested he is in the education space and the ad tech space as well. So again, Al, thank you so much. And before we get into the meat of the matter, because there may be some viewers that are joining us this morning that may not be familiar with your work yet. And so we want to make sure that we make those connections. So Al, if you can give us a little brief introduction and what your context is within the education space. I will do my darndest in a, a, a succinct way for you, Fonz. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, where's the summary? 30 years in the ed tech space, so I reckon I'm starting to get the grip on it. Um, within that capacity, CEO of an ed tech company. Uh, but education's always been my passion. So for the last 20-plus years, I've been involved in school governance, school support. Uh, I'm currently chair of a multi-academy trust in the east of England, a bit like a school district, supporting schools right the way through, K through um, 14 in terms of gaps, I guess, and ages. Um, in addition to that, I also support and chair 
uh, a school for children that struggle in mainstream education, we refer to it as an alternative provision. Uh, I work with the Department for Education in the UK, supporting academies, which is one classification of schools across the east of England. Um, I also chair our Special Educational Needs and Disabilities Board for our region. And then alongside that, um, I wear a hat supporting as chair of the British Education Suppliers Association. And as a fan of kind of co-production, for me, the two go hand in hand. You've got to be involved in day-to-day -day in schools, supporting schools to understand where the pressure is and then to look for innovation and ways that you can support with technology where appropriate. And as you know, within those little gaps and those quiet evenings, I also like to turn my experiences, the things I've learned, the things I've seen, and occasionally the things I've done into articles and books um, to just try and give a signpost, a question list and a checklist for others. Excellent. Well, I mean, again, very succinct, but if you do follow Al, you will see that there is definitely quite a trajectory there, you know, and just a lot of great work. And, you know, from the time that we first, uh, you know, had our first show, um, you had your first book out. And then after that, you know, as time has gone on and, you know, things have changed within the education space, obviously, due to COVID and, you know, coming back to brick and mortar and, you know, just it was just a whole readjustment, realignment. I know that you came up with uh, two other books. So if you could just briefly share a little bit about those two other books. And then, you know, I know our main topic today, which I'm thankful to focus on, is on strategic planning, especially on the digital aspect. But, you know, if you can share a little bit about your Ooh. writing, that would be great. Yeah, I never really planned to write a book. In fact, my first my first thought was, you know, doing a thousand words for an article was a bit of an ask. So um <laughs> The first book became lots of thousand word articles that I stitched together and, and I, I produced my secret ed tech diary, which was, I think, quite timely with the, the pandemic and, and that change in the role and, and importance of technology to to support and mitigate some of the, uh, the impact for our learners. Um, so that was a history of technology the last 20 years, moving forward, lessons we've learned and strategies to adopt and grow our digital strategies. I was then asked one of the biggest challenges we saw, certainly in UK schools, but it replicated around the world, was in terms of that governance and oversight, the pressures on our school system, how do we actually create the right challenge, the right frameworks to, to really make sure that we're, we're delivering impact. So I wrote my school governance handbook, which was all the kind of questions to ask from an oversight and leadership perspective. Um, and then... The last 12 months, um, we've seen replicated around the world. Uh, obviously, from my perspective, it was very much looking at the UK system to start with, but huge pressures on education. You know, we typically talk about our measures of success and impact as being student progress and student attainment. But actually, increasingly, when we look at our kind of key measures and our key pressure points, risks right now in our school systems, it's teacher recruitment and retention, it's yeah. well-being, it's social, emotional, mental health, it's financial stability, being able to, to squeeze more out of those dollars, but actually make the right choices where potentially we can, we can grow and be more cost effective. So I was asked to kind of pen a similar guide, very much focused around what are the pathways, what are the, the questions you should be asking, what are the things you should be looking at and considering. Uh, and it's called my school and multi-academy trust growth guide but actually the school bit relates to wherever you are in the world it's really saying look there's only finite ways that you can grow what you have within your particular school or school district or system and thinking about the ways that you can grow now the link i suppose dovetails really nicely for our conversation here fonz is 
actually technology is one of the key levers to growth. And that seems kind of a strange question in a way or an idea. But whether it's, you know, wherever you are in the world and you've got a school that's coming to join your cluster of schools, well, having a, an ecosystem and a technology infrastructure that allows a school to plug in, access resources, share data, allow you to effectively oversee and manage at the school, that pre-planning and having the right digital infrastructure, which ties into your broader digital strategy, is really key. But it can also be actually reflecting on just your existing cluster of schools and how you could kind of break down some of those silos and make sure that you're using data effectively and securely, but also looking at ways to more effectively share resources, whether it's your lesson planning and your curriculum resources, whether it's your exemplars and your training guides and resources for your professional development. There are always ways where the infrastructure is kind of key. Um, and I suppose it leads me down a, a bit of a path, which is when we talk ed tech, we need to be really careful that, that we don't th always think of ed tech as just being in the classroom. The whole school ecosystem uses technology. And, and many of those systems, I believe, come under the umbrella of ed tech, but they aren't all explicitly pedagogy aligned. You know, our MIS reporting systems, our student information systems, our online safety tools, the way we communicate with parents, the way that we assess our data dashboards for impact. Sometimes they're used for other purposes, but the more efficient we are within that process, the more we reduced our operational costs, the time delays, and we also reduce workload. And that feeds into having more to do what we really want to do, which is to help shape and nurture our young people. So it's a bit of a roundabout way of how the books kind of follow through. But I, I am a fan sometimes of um, the natural persuasion is to dive deeper and get to the detail. And sometimes you've just got to take a view back and look at the bigger picture to really be able to leverage the benefits. Absolutely. You know, everything that you said there is just, you know, you've hit on so many points that I know we'll hit on specifically in this conversation. And like I mentioned to you, I'm really excited about today's conversation because this is something that seven years in this uh, role that I've been uh, doing as an instructional technologist within a district, you know, we, we've seen some changes. We've seen where there's, you know, of course you move forward a bit, but then of course COVID happened, then you kind of move back a bit and, you know, and then some schools, you know, it seems like they're still trying to figure things out. I'm sure that that's not just here, but it's, you know, everywhere where, you know, developing those strategies. But I love what you mentioned, especially on the tech, the tech point aspect of it. We always focus in the classroom and oftentimes we don't think too much of the rest of the stakeholders, the rest of the people, like you mentioned, the communication system to parents is something that's very important. The LMS, you know, grading and so on. And have making sure that you have the appropriate infrastructure so you can go ahead and make sure that you nurture that. But we'll definitely get into that in just a second. Now, Al, the only the other thing that I want to turn into or actually talk about is I know that you've been putting out this great newsletter and you've been, you know, putting out some amazing images. So I know you've been dabbling, you know, in AI. So yeah. real quick, maybe in the, for a couple of minutes, we'll talk about what your experience has been, what you've seen, and what are the what you're seeing, at least within the school system, what are those senior leaders, uh, you know, thinking what's going on through their minds since you have more access based on conferences that you go to? What's the conversation like about AI within the education system? I think the honest answer is it's mixed. I'd love to say it's the hot topic that all senior leaders are talking about. I actually think in many cases um, it's bottom up. 
there are lots of digital leaders there are lots of practitioners in the classroom that are developing their own professional development connecting on different platforms to discover more and there's less that i'm seeing consistently where it's senior leadership really driving a strategy other than the natural knee jerk perhaps um earlier this year of the should we shouldn't we block it you know that that black and white consideration we've seen that ai word um very quickly and i think actually it was led in part by existing vendors uh, across different sectors there was a separation of we need to consider generative and non-generative in a different way you know and for those listening you know i think it's quite an important distinction but not as much as sometimes gets painted from a legislative point of view so so non-gen is we're not creating anything new we're just looking at large data sets and we're using algorithms to help shape and inform you you know and, and in medicine we've been doing that for many years we can look at 100,000 men of a certain age and looking at key information about them, we can predict those that are most likely to be at risk of heart disease, for example. And the same sort of applies in education products. We can look at students um, questioning of vast arrays of questions as part of their personalized learning pathways. You know, and from that, we can identify students that need to go back and get a, perhaps a, a revisit to some of the foundational topics or where there's opportunity to stretch and challenge. And we've kind of said, well, that's okay, but we need to be really careful of generative AI because we're creating new stuff and how do we validate its accuracy or an efficiency? And I think that's perfectly reasonable, um, but I do just put that little caveat in, which is even in non-gen, there's still bias, there's still algorithmic decisions that are being made. And I think we need to be careful not to completely ignore that as part of the conversation. What we've seen in schools, and I guess it kind of segues into that a little bit, has been probably the initial window around the world has been utilizing um, generative AI, the typical chat GPT, BARD, and lots of other tools that are out there uh, to create lesson planning resources, or probably more effectively, the framework for lesson planning resources, getting some of the, the elements together. Uh, lots of people have been dabbling on the generative imagery tools that the mid journeys of this world which i particularly like playing around with uh, i'd say i play around with it for inquiry not for really any purposeful action but nonetheless um and again you know if we talk about the conversation of getting the right imagery to support curriculum resources and we're not worrying about copyright and other things well yeah there's some real benefit there um at this stage there is definitely opportunity people are exploring because we're getting more tailored solutions specifically for educators and for schools and those are, in effect, um, hard coding within scripts, some of the effective questioning, which is really the key to unlocking any kind of generative AI platform. You know, for, for years, we rightly talked to our, to our learners about, you know, making sure we're asking the right question, we're thinking about the right variables, being specific in, in how we actually identify and, and unpick something. And never more has that been the case when we think of an AI tool where actually, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you don't signpost and be very specific in what you want, the context, the shape, the format of the output you want, then you're not going to get what you need. There's a second part, of course, which is this conversation that started probably at the beginning when we when it first appeared really on the public scene was students are going to cheat. So let's turn it off, you know. And well, that's an interesting knee jerk. I happen to think that's an absolute fool's folly, that approach and strategy. Um, and I say so simply because we just need to remind ourselves that we've had in various iterations, albeit not as effective and data sets smaller, 
You know, we've had the ability for many years for a child to ask their friend Siri or Alexa all sorts of questions and answers. And at no point have we said, well, we ban those in the home because we don't want a child to cheat on their homework. What we do is we, we have to look at ways to utilize these resources to allow a child to further develop their understanding and at the same time look at the different ways we can use our formative assessment in the classroom to really understand their their depth of knowledge and, and almost empower our learners to use tools to, with the right questioning and the right signposting from the educator to develop their knowledge. I think the bigger skill is signposting them where, which platforms do we actually want our, our children using and where do we have confidence they're both safe. But something I talk quite a lot about, and I know is an area that, that you've um, articulated before as well, you know, is, is broader to me. It's, it ties in wholeheartedly with digital citizenship. You know, Fundamentally, the best way we empower our learners is to give them the skills. And, and I've written a few times recently how um, those things that we often call soft skills, which is a nice way of discounting things, uh, are now being considered more the, uh, the power skills by employers. So actually empowering our learners to know how to ask the right questions, to challenge the authenticity, to research and evidence the source of information is something that's a really transferable skill. So I've probably gone off down a slight segue, but in the practical answer is, those conversations are having, but I don't think schools have got enough leadership buy-in yet. The buy-in has been the yay or nay to use and the do we need to have a policy for that rather than really thinking about how do we bring educators together the same way as we did with our broader digital strategy or certain curriculum provision and actually get groups working together and coming up with effective proposals of how it can be utilized to genuinely impact positively on learning. There you go. Excellent. Well, actually, that really segues great into obviously the, the main focus of our conversation. And I know that in what we've discussed so far, you've kind of touched on some of those points, but I would definitely like to dig in a little bit deeper and especially, you know, that we're talking about digital strategy and how that is key for schools. So I want to ask you in your experience and what you've seen, what are some of the, I guess we want to say maybe biggest mistakes, I guess I would say, or just a mis mistakes that schools make when adopting new technology without a defined strategy? Yeah, there's, there's, there's probably two strands I would probably refer to on it. I think the first is the broader adopt, making a decision about what we want to do. And the second is then the detail of how we select the right technology, the right platforms to actually deliver on that. So I think on the highest level, when we think about our digital strategy, there's, there's been two kind of challenges, I suppose. One has been the idea that we, we introduce a top-down approach to our digital strategy. Well, you know what? Co-production is something that in education we do best. And so that, for me, needs to be fully inclusive in terms of the stakeholders across our school that are really tied into that. Um, and that means that often some of our most junior members of staff may well have joined our school or our district from another school where they've got experiences of technology and we need to hear them. We also need to understand from a student perspective about how technology plays a role in whether it's in greater student engagement or whether it's about accessibility or how it fosters learning. And then the questions are always about on a digital strategy, what's our intent? How do we in, uh, plan to deliver it? And how do we intend to measure impact? And often we get quite prescriptive, whereas the reality is we know we have a very mixed cohort of educators in our schools and we have a very mixed cohort of students. So 
if we believe there's a one size fits all that's going to work for everybody in our school, again, we're going to miss out. It's about creating opportunity for teachers to use their professional judgment of where it will best impact. So what I've tended to see where it's been successful has been digital strategies that rather than one person being the all-knowing, all-seeing person to make the strategy, is that we've got all the stakeholders involved and often the digital strategy becomes different pillars. Whether it's about students' digital skills, teachers' digital skills, bringing in innovation, looking at the infrastructure of our technology, looking at how it can foster and collaborate communication, whether that's teacher to teacher, teacher to student or teacher to parent. And then the last strand is also how it can benefit staff and student well-being. And that could have a little brackets on the end, which is tools to save teachers time. But nonetheless, well-being is a really key strand. And that allows you to empower different educators with different experiences to lead those different strands. And you get a much richer and a much more structured and nuanced digital strategy from that. Then the second part is, OK, we've decided we're following this path. Now we want to go and acquire a solution. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking software, hardware at this stage. For me, there are two strands. This is not, again, a one-person evaluation cycle. We've got a technical consideration of, will this technology work within our infrastructure? Is it platform agnostic, or is it going to tie us down a certain path for future years? Um, is the data secure, and how do we know it's secure, and have we risk assessed around that? Um, and we'll have things like, you know, does it plug into our existing system? Have we got to duplicate data, or will it bring in our rostering information, and so on? So this kind of a techie journey. In parallel, there's an educator journey. Have we already got a tool that sort of does this? And sometimes it's like, oh, yeah. Um, what about other schools in our cluster? Maybe we want to make sure we're consistent because there's some economies of scale there, whether it's for professional development or physical licensing costs. Um, are we really clear on what its intent is? Um, and, and are we happy that it will meet our particular needs and how we're going to measure that? And if we kind of get ticks on all those boxes, then we can spend some time actually evaluating the product because there's no point evaluating it if it's never going to pass our data protection plan, for example. Um, so we often then move into that phase of make sure you've got a vendor presentation, make sure you've tried it on your devices, looking at evidence. So is it comparative evidence? One cohort of students used it, one cohort didn't. Is it evidence we've got from white papers, research studies? Have we talked to peers who already use that technology to look at their white papers or case studies that they've got around the technology? All the things that align with our measure of wanting to use evidence-informed edtech. Now, good vendors should provide you with lots of evidence, externally validated, whether it's depending on the type of product, it's pedagogical qualities and content, or whether it's about those plans in terms of where the data is, it's privacy agreements, or whether it's about things like data maps, because one thing you don't want to do is commit to a platform, a solution, a technology, and find it sticky. And I, something I often talk about, sticky systems are great for vendors, not so good for schools and districts. Because if you decide in a year's time and thinking about the pace of change in the world, there's a better solution. Maybe it's cheaper, maybe it does more things, more functionality. You don't want to be in a position where your existing data is stuck and it's really hard to migrate into that new system. So thinking ahead gives you more choices. It puts you at the forefront of the discussion as the uh, um, as the customer in that environment. And then when you follow that rubric round, you then get to the point of, well, now we can make a recommendation to purchase. And so I think separating those two bits for shaping strategically where we want to go, 
getting all those voices together, making sure it aligns with our own development plans for our school and our priorities, and setting a direction of travel for the next five years, bearing in mind your strategy will be updated and will change as the years go on, and then separately having that much more structured approach to how do we select the right tools gives you more confidence. Uh, and then my last tip has always been, and I've seen it with many schools, is um, ironic for somebody who's very supportive of EdTech, um, sometimes less is more. Don't try and do too many new things at once. Those that do end up with loads of projects that aren't quite finished and a lot of really stressed staff. Do one or two things, do them well, embed them, make sure you've got the right wraparound CPD, not just once, but throughout the year. And at the end of that process, you'll actually find that you've got measures of impact, you'll build confidence, and you'll be in a much stronger place to then move forward and take it further. I absolutely love this. I think this whole bit right now that you just said should be a guide, maybe. Yeah, so I'm giving you an idea. Ooh, you like a <laughs> yeah, you wrote a yeah, you wrote you already have it in a book, but this is kind of like that shorter condensed guide. Like yeah. here's a, a quick, you know, notes up for your CTOs and all the stakeholders because I love the way that you talked about this, Al. It's so important because oftentimes this is something that may not be seen within a lot of school districts, depending on leadership as well. But I love the fact that you've talked about including all major stakeholders, not just IT staff, but you're talking about all school leadership, even finance. Also, obviously, somebody's got to pay for all of this. So you want to make sure that in the long run, you're going to get your return on instruction and return on investment as well. So that's something that's very important. But I also love the fact that you're saying like, hey, you know, let, let's try this out. But let's keep it simple. And oftentimes what happens is there's so many apps out there. There's so many platforms. And I get it. You know, it's a business. You want to make sure you sell and you want to make sure that you get your product within the doors of that school district. But are we really doing a due diligence? Because oftentimes it seems that many of the processes that we go through seem to be rushed because we just need to have a product and we need to have something that's going to do. And, and then you get it and you know, all of a sudden it's you purchased something that you, or in other words, you got something uh, that wasn't what you thought you purchased and now you're stuck. And like you mentioned a couple of things, you know, that's a trickle down effect because at the same time, it's the teachers are going to get frustrated because it's like, hey, you sold us on something, but we didn't get that something. We got something else that's a little bit more difficult, a little bit more, uh, the, the user experience isn't there and it just becomes like another thing on their plate. Mm -hmm. And of course that leads to just, you know, teachers not being very happy, but also the students get affected because they're not using this. So I love what you said. Um, I'm sorry, um, real quick. I just said, I love what you said as far as keeping it simple, you know, keep it simple, find what is working for you right now and just stick with it, you know, and then just kind of see, okay, what else is out there maybe for future. But if it's something's working for you, I mean, just, and you've got the reporting, everything's connected to your LMS. You're getting exactly what you need as far as student data is concerned. Everything works on all the devices. You know, that's great. Oftentimes it's the the app hopping, like, no, no, I want this and I want that and so on. So, you know, I'm sorry that I interrupted you there. No, but... not at all. I think I absolutely resonate with what, you, what you're saying there. I think the thing we have to remember on all these things is, there's so much visibility. I mean, this is the world we live in now, a digital world where we see and we sh and, and have the indirect lived experiences of schools and other educators all around the world. And so there's a risk sometimes that we feel that somehow if we haven't got enough technology in our setting, we're, we're somehow failing our students. There is never, ever, 
ever going to be a prize to the school with the most tech. That's not the measure. The measure is the school that uses it most purposefully with impact and to benefit. You know, my, some of my favorite lessons when I'm in one of our schools have no technology whatsoever. And that doesn't in any way mean that I feel like we're missing a trick. You know, sometimes it's well, it, more often than not, frankly, it's the human to human interaction that really is the thing that that sparks. But I think there's a journey here that not only are schools on, but I think for the right reasons, the ed tech community, the vendors are on a journey as well. You know, historically, technology vendors selling into the commercial space and then selling into the education space, it was quite transactional. You know, it's a pleasure you trying my product, Fonz, would you like to buy a copy? Here's an invoice and thank you very much. See you in a year's time. And increasingly what we're seeing now is actually the products that have longevity, the products that actually take the effort when it comes to the evidence of impact don't start a transaction, they start a relationship. They actually recognize that the best way to improve their product and services is to shut up and listen. And the more you engage with your community, the more you listen, the more you learn that allows you to refine your product and make it much more fit for purpose. Because yes, you might make a quick buck if you sell a load of product one year and then it doesn't work and you're out of business and you come up with a new product and off you go in a cycle. But if you really care about education and you really care about the long-term futures, that's not what you want to do. You want a customer who's loyal with and committed to you because they love the products you do and they feel it like if they have an idea or a way they can improve it further, you listen. And I think vendors are getting smarter to realize that you can't just rock up and sell stuff. There's a lot more to it. The same way as when you've handed over that that app or that license or that bit of hardware you need to be at the forefront of providing the support to get staff up to speed on it their professional development because if they get the right support and they use the product effectively big surprise they're much more likely to stick with your technology and keep using it because it's doing as it was intended so understanding that kind of becomes a natural progression to understanding why the power of professional development, the power of being involved and getting involved in conversations and listening and going to events, the more you understand, the better that feeds back into product. And the same way as educators, for the right reason, and schools are realizing that this new digital connectivity gives them a much easier way to share their dissatisfaction as well as their satisfaction with solutions. And so, you know, this is all about better communication, working in harmony, that co-production that I always talk about, because I think it's at the heart of successful solutions, successful strategies, uh, you know, and big surprise when we talk about change, project management within our schools, co-production is ultimately because everybody knows the reason you're going on your journey and what you're hoping to achieve. Maybe not everybody will agree with you. But if we all understand the purpose and the direction of travel, it's much more likely we'll come along for the ride rather than get dragged along kicking and screaming. Excellent. I love that. Yeah, you hit on so many things there that just, again, it, it's been great what I've been hearing so far. And I'm just already thinking like these are just some amazing sound bites that you are definitely sharing. And I love how you bring it back also to the co-production. I mean, that's something that is so important. And oftentimes, you know, I think that, at the beginning of the school year or towards the end of the school year, there's always kind of a, a 
like just this nervous energy of like, we got to get something for next year. And, and there's this anxiousness of like, well, the teachers didn't like this, this year, what are we going to get them? And then it's, you make decisions based on just the leadership up at the top, but we never really take into account what the teachers are doing or using. And maybe it's because you only hear it from maybe certain teachers that say, no, this product isn't working, but yet there may be more teachers that are saying, Hey, this is great. Like, you know, this is, I'm, you know, the kids are enjoying it and so on. And sometimes mm -hmm. decisions are based on a certain subset of teachers rather than actually asking the whole of the district and say, Hey, what are your thoughts on this? What is the feedback? Is this something that you would continue using or what would be some improvements? And, you know, so that's something what I feel I see very often in neighboring school districts where I've talked to some of my colleagues, uh, you know, in those districts and they're like, yeah, man, like everything was working fine. And then all of a sudden it's like, nope, we're going to go with this now. And then it's, it seems like every year it's just a different onboarding and a different product and so on. So that consistency isn't there. So my question to you, as far as that is concerned, so Innovation, we talk about it, experimentation with technology. So how can we ensure that the strategies align towards that broader goal and maybe kind of, you know, suggestions on how not to just app hop based on maybe small groups of feedback? Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always maintained with a digital strategy that people often try and say, you know, um, my, my rather poor analogy, you know, is, if the budget this year provides us with $50 a gas, we shouldn't be setting the direction of travel of how far we can go on that gas. We need to be thinking about where our ultimate destination is um, in five years from now, 10 years from now, or the framework that allows us to head on that journey. And then each stepping stone based on the financials, at least we're heading in the right direction with our first $50 a gas. And sometimes we see schools heading south and then realizing they look at a different platform or tablet instead and suddenly everything they've done gets thrown away so like most things if you want to introduce change it's much better to build change step by step in a structured way than to try and be too radical too quickly i, I do think the, the pressure to innovate and adapt sometimes we try and bite off too much and often you know i point the finger at some of our senior leaders and say we need to be mindful that actually what we're asking of our staff within our schools sometimes has far greater impact than you realize in terms of how much they've got to spend and invest of their time for professional development. But also, if we want to use technology effectively, it's not just understanding the tool. It's actually thinking about how that tool can be used within the teaching and learning to actually add value and be purposeful. And that's not something that you can do overnight. Um, I do think we've learned lots about we can better share resources so that when new staff join a school, um, they can access some of the, the, the learnings and experiences that already exist. Um, I know in a number of our schools, in fact, last year, I was <laughs> I felt slightly embarrassed given that it's something that I'm such an advocate of. But in, but in one of our schools, we had some new um, interactive screens delivered that we'd already got in one of our other schools. Um, and they'd had some professional development and someone had come in on site to do some training. And I asked the question, did you invite any of the new staff from our other schools to come and take part as well? Or did anybody record the training session so we could share it with them, knowing they've got the same technology? Nobody had thought about it. And it was, you know, it's a genuine mistake. But 
there are little things we can do that says, well, actually, if we're going down this journey, we could capture this because we're going to get new staff join us during the, the year, the start of the next academic year. We've got a big cohort across our broader ecosystem. We could actually be pre-building our own resources, our own learning library. That means that those foundations become embedded for staff and new staff can access them easier. And then we can deliver change. I absolutely said there are some key bits that I always recommend. If you're buying technology applications, make sure they're device agnostic. It doesn't limit your choices. The second thing is think of the foundations and build the layers step by step. Most schools think when we talk digital strategy, depending on your role, that we're talking about spending more money. That's the assumption. Whereas actually the first wave of that process is actually to look at what you've got, resources, physical and the, the apps, and actually reflect on how effectively they're being used. In most schools, you'll find there are some devices, whether it's computers or tablets, that are either in a classroom space somewhere or in a car that are being used once or twice a week that could be much better deployed somewhere else. Or on reviewing all of the subscriptions that you've got, you've moved on two steps with your preferred curriculum choice for your subject. And there are other subscriptions that are still being renewed just in case. And that actually by having a really clear grip on what you use and reflecting on what you use well, you'll actually save some money that will give you the flexibility to then from an informed position say, now I'm going to use that to do more of this because I already know this works well. And so suddenly we start building from a position of evidence. And then naturally we say, well, if we want to add something new, we need to find a different way to fill the evidence bucket. So who else do we know that uses that tool? Where are we into again in that evaluation cycle of giving us the confidence? And then are we clear ourselves how we're going to measure it in the next year? And never be afraid to say to a vendor, you know, I've tried it for a month, but I need a bit longer. I need to be comfortable. You know, a good vendor should say, well, that's fine, because it's in their interest too. Um, I think moving forward, you know, I'd say, well, make sure you subscribe to My EdTech Life, because one of the most important things is being informed about what's happening in the world of technology and education and how that might shape our choices as the years move forward. In truth, the number one litmus test really is the workplace. The last two years, the workplace has been through huge transition. We've moved into a landscape where rather than being predominantly place-based, we work in a hybrid world in many jobs. And within that hybrid world, technology plays a greater role in every individual that's in the workplace. And so part of what shapes what we have to do in schools is to set our learners up for the experiences, the technology, the approaches to using technology that they will encounter in the workplace. So really, you know, back to the earlier mention on the, on the AI side, you know, we can't shy away from it knowing that most businesses are looking at AI in ways to streamline, be more efficient, be more productive, be more innovative. How can we possibly expect our learners to be equipped for work if they've never had the opportunity to utilize that in a structured, controlled and supported way? Um, so that shapes the trajectory, whether we like it or not. But I also think it's huge because so many learners I meet have been restricted often by their life choices that when they leave school, they're going to be working in the proximity to where they live. And that area may be hugely high tech or it may have high social deprivation. And suddenly with this new hybrid workplace, 
you can live in an area of deprivation, but sign up and be working for a, a tech startup in California. You have more opportunity. There's more competition, but suddenly those digital skills actually unlock your access to a workplace that is global. And so that, for me, accelerates the necessity to develop those skills. I love it. And, you know, all of that that you mentioned, too, I love the fact that at least I'm caring, at least for myself, I'm thinking this is a great way to maintain, of course, the what you're trying to do, that your goal aligns with the broader picture, but also remaining flexible. And I think that's something that's very important, you know, within leadership and the stakeholders. And obviously, as the, the ed tech moves forward and pedagogy moves forward and practices change and so on, it's very important to remain flexible, uh, you know, within that digital strategy. And I think there's a lot of tips there that really help see that aspect of, all right, like maybe many times it's like, hey, this is the way we're going and we're just going to just remain this way. But sometimes it's like, hey, you got to leave room for some flexibility there. And that's something that's very important because then we definitely don't want to break what you've built up. And I think that's so important that you mentioned too, is that as you're working with the strategy is building up to what is coming. What do we see? What do we hear doing that research and seeing, okay, let's, let's take that road in. We're headed down that road, but with what we have, how can we make that happen and continue moving forward? So yeah, I absolutely love that. So as we're kind of wrapping up a little bit, I just kind of wanted uh, to ask you one more question, you know, as far as for schools, I, I know uh, over there in the UK, school is out for the summer right now, a um, little bit before you guys back, start. Back, or, in, back on Monday, in most oh, cases. Actually, back on Monday. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, it's because I think I saw a picture of Avid saying like school's out for summer. So maybe I missed it. Maybe it wasn't that. He, no, he. Um, <laughs> many of you will know will know Avid. He's done what many um, school <laughs> network managers have done, which is he's worked most of the holidays, the vacation period, updating the infrastructure in his schools. <laughs> And then the final week of the holidays, he actually gets to take some vacation. <laughs> there you go. All right. So then my question to you is for many schools, I know we just started here in the U.S. and a lot of schools have already maybe three weeks, almost a month in and so on. But I guess for future um, you know, schools that may be overwhelmed by creating a digital strategy, you know, what, what are some tips, maybe, you know, Al's top three to four tips to just kind of get started and say, okay, this is, these are some great starters. Let's go with this. What would be some best, best advice or best practice for you to share? Okay. Um, it's, it's a really difficult one because there are so many angles. I suppose the first conversation is why do we want a digital strategy? What are we hoping to achieve? And in that conversation, hopefully if you get the right stakeholders around the table, there will be questions about how we can improve and innovate the teaching and learning experience. There might be questions about how we can re-engage some of our disengaged learners. There might be some questions about how we can make our teaching and learning more accessible to some of our learners. Um, there will be questions about how we can streamline and save time for staff. There will be questions about how we can improve communication. And there will absolutely be leadership around there are some key areas of strategic improvement that we're looking to undertake in our school or district. And this needs to align and prioritize against some of those areas of development. So from that, you've got a sense of why are we talking about tech and how might it help? 
from that, you create those pillars that I talked about, which is identify those strands because you, there's no one expert in the room. Um, someone to focus around how that can benefit teachers, their professional development, their use of technology more effectively, one for learners, one for innovating learners, one for that infrastructure. And if you want to, you can put together infrastructure and communication. And then that well-being that I talk about, think of it as time time saving. So now you can have four or five or six people that can be focused on that. Set yourself some objectives. I always say in order to move forward, you've got to look backwards. Start with what is it we know we do well. Then if you've got time, build on the I know what we do well with the what else have we got that we haven't included on that list? Because that by association must mean it doesn't stand out. We haven't noticed or it isn't working well. Let's revisit and make sure we do. And then your digital strategy starts to be the what could we do based on those key priorities? And I would always say part is reflecting on what you're doing in your school and what your planning is. And part is looking outside, understanding what options are available to you. Now, every school will be on a different part of its journey. Some schools will have lots of technology, others won't. Some will have technology, but we'll be thinking about if we embed this, how will we re refresh and renew it in four years from now? Some will be thinking about it's the systems, not the classroom that's the problem. So you really need to understand where are your main areas of development? Where are your pinch points? Is it we've got loads of data, but so what? Is data being used for purpose? And that's much more about actually training and understanding what data actually sh helps shape and inform decisions? Or is it about staff confidence using the technology? And if it is, think of that glass of water that's full. You've got to tip something out before you tip more in. You can't just say to staff, welcome back to school. Here's a new app you're going to use every day. Good luck. You can, but then your well-being pillar is going to start to crumble and wobble. So we've got to think about how do we introduce that? And that's the point of actually communicating. We're thinking about this solution. We're thinking about it because it will do X, Y, and Z. And we think it will have an impact and time saving for you here. Let's do the professional development. If you're really interested, let's pick a few of you to be involved in the evaluation cycle. And now there's no surprises. We've bought into it together. We're in this journey together and we can all understand the objectives. If you try and do that with one thing, maybe two, it's manageable. Try and do it with 10 things, and we're trying to spin multiple plates and see how many we can keep up. So temper your enthusiasm until you've been through that project cycle. Anybody who's familiar with change, thinking of things like you know, Kubler-Ross change curve, we start off thinking, yeah, we've got a new idea. This is going to be great. And then suddenly the realization hits us, and, oh, we've got to learn this new product. We've got to install it. We've got to get our CPD. And often you've got to go through that period before you start to see that, oh, this is exciting. And, oh, I've just learned this with it. And I can now add this to my teaching and learning. And now my students love it. And we're heading back up the curve. Finding and recognizing that those are parts of the cycle allows you to preempt with the support and wraparound you put. And my final bit would be flag bearers, something I'm really passionate about. You know, in most schools, we know who's got which classroom. And possibly we know their phone number if you need to call them. But it's surprising in how many schools, if I walked in the door and said, so who's the uh, the expert on classroom.cloud or who's the expert on Teams forms or whatever it might be, everyone would scratch their heads. You will have within your school or your district, without a doubt, you will have educators 
who are doing some amazing things with the tools that you currently have prescribed, you need to signpost them, need to identify the flag bearers so that when other staff decide, you know what, I'm going to start playing around with creating Microsoft Forms and do the next thing with it. Not only am I relying on YouTube and, of course, other video servicing platforms, but I actually know there's somebody on the teaching cohort that I could reach out to for a bit of support and guidance that might save me a lot of time, but also give me confidence if things aren't quite right, that I can I can support them. So if you've got the five, the 10, the 15 key applications that you use across your school, who are the five, the 10, the 15 flag bearers that you can signpost to give staff that personal confidence to reach out? I love it. I love it. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, you hit on so many things today that it's going to be great to just go back and listen to the show and just really pick those knowledge nuggets and just sprinkle them onto some of the things that I'm doing. And of course, some of the things that we're doing in our district too, and just to share those things. And so Al, I just thank you so much for just sharing your expertise, your just your experience more than anything, because you travel, you get to see so many districts, you get to meet with so many great leaders, and you get different perspectives, and you continue to learn. And thank you for that, because you also continue to learn, and you get to share what you continue to learn. And I think that's one of the most important things there as well, you know, learning from your own experiences, but learning from others experience as as well so thank you so much for everything that you do and contribute to the edtech education space and thank you just for being a great friend i really appreciate you very much and thank you for being a guest here today but before we go we always love to end the show with the following three questions and of course if you've uh -oh. seen the show i know you're maybe familiar with the last three questions uh i i know things have changed a little bit in the, the two years since you were last on but, you know, I the first question that I always love to ask is, as we know, Superman's greatest weakness was kryptonite. So that really weakened him. So my question to you, Al, is within the education space, what is your current edu kryptonite? Uh, uh, it's a fairly easy one because I often get told by those nearest to me, um, and I think many suffer with it. Um, I'm not very good at saying no. I say yes to too much and I put too much pressure on myself to try and do as many things as I can. And I think actually many educators right now feel like they're constantly obliged to say yes when it really isn't the best thing for them and their, their own mental health and well-being. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. All right. Question number two, Al, is if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? And it can't be a Porsche, okay? <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> um, you know what? I could put so many things on a billboard, but probably the thing that I would say right now is something that is, I just think is really important. I would probably put on the billboard, how are you? Because I think one of the biggest things we lost during two years of digital comms and continue to miss with so much interaction through a screen is that moment before and after a conversation that's purposeful or business-like to actually just check in with people. How are you doing? And, and that how you're doing can mean a lot to people depending on what's going on in their lives right now. You can learn a lot, but you also build not just empathy, but you build understanding from peers by just taking those few minutes over the proverbial water cooler to just check in. 
you know, what's happening in your life? Are you well? Are you happy? Are you under pressure? Oh, I know someone who could help you with that. It becomes the catalyst to provide support and nurture. And I think no matter where we are on our professional careers, we all need somebody to say, how are you? Uh, and I think the more we can remind ourselves with such pressure and busy lives going on, particularly in our schools at the moment, we need to find time for that. And then I just want to remind people. I love it. Thank you so much. That That's definitely a great billboard for sure. All right. And the last question, Al. All right. I know that you are involved in so many things, but I know that somewhere along the line, even within the little time down that or downtime that you have, there must be either a hobby or an activity that you love to do. So my last question to you is, is what would be a hobby or activity that you love to do that you would love to turn into a professional um, as a profession, you know, and say like, hey, this is it. <laughs> oh, it's it's so difficult. And um, those people that follow me, I, I always think the first rule is not to take yourself too seriously. I love to share my experiences and include my personal well-being champion with me, Ferdy, my little cockapoo. Uh, and there is something that is a real leveler of having, you know, your best friend, whatever the pet may be. I'm a fan of dogs, but hey, all pets count in different ways. Uh, and and I always say I wish I had more time. You know, if I if I had the agreement of my wife and more time, I'd have 22 dogs that I would love to spend time with and, and do more adventurous things with. So there's there's definitely something around that would be one of my top topics. You know, I have a bit of a uh, a bit of a penchant for classic cars, older the better, and I've always had great pleasure in either taking part in restoring and bringing something back to life or in my latter years more project management than hands-on but it still continues to be something that i love the history of, of old cars and um, maybe that makes me good in an eco sense in some shape or form but yeah something so maybe cars with dogs in them that would be my combination which sounds highly unlikely but there we are I love it. Hey, maybe you can start a, your own podcast or something to like, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, car? Uh, what is it? Dogs and cars or something. And then it's just you just, you know, driving around with your dogs in a nice classic Porsche and just recording yourself and your thoughts and your ideas. You know, I, I'd be listening to that all the time. I, but you, know, you be might great. be the only listener, to be honest. Franz, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's, it's an hey. idea to consider. Hey, it's an idea to consider there. But Al, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate My your favorite. time. Thank you so much for all your wonderful shares. I, I know that our audience members that will be catching this on the replay are definitely going to find some golden nuggets there that they can take back and sprinkle onto what they're doing great and to take them back to their districts as well and just to get some conversations going and trying to figure things out and just you know sprinkle it onto what they're already doing good and just continue to move forward and as we navigate the education ed tech space so thank you so much i really appreciate you and to all our audience members thank you so much as always for making my ed tech life what it is today we appreciate as always all the likes the shares the follows thank you so much for all the support please make sure you visit our youtube channel give us a thumbs up subscribe to our youtube channel we're trying to get to a thousand subscribers so any help would be greatly appreciated but thank you all for those that have been subscribing to us whether you're listening to us on spotify you're listening to us on apple uh on your favorite podcast player 
thank you so much for making us part of either your listening pleasure, whether it's morning, noon, or afternoon. It doesn't matter. Thank you so much as always. And please make sure you visit our website at myedtech.life, myedtech.life, where you can check out this amazing episode and the other 227 wonderful episodes with educators, creators, entrepreneurs, founders, and so on. You're going to find a little bit of something for you there that you can take from, that you can learn and add it to your tool belt as well. So thank you as always. And my friends, until next time, don't forget... Stay techie.